On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Joel Anderson. He is the VP of Technical Operations at MongoDB. We've got a couple of different topics we're going to be diving into this episode. We're going to be looking at compliance and as you transition from a startup to a larger enterprise, when do you start setting that program up? How does it look? Some of the challenges of deploying to China. And we're going to talk about adopting CICD practices more within the IT enterprise space, touching you know data and business systems. Joel, thanks for being on the podcast. Yes, certainly. My pleasure. Absolutely. And I obviously did not uh, do justice to your background. You got a fantastic background. And to provide some context, can you let the audience know kind of who you are and, and how you got to this point? Sure. So I, I currently run most of the internal and technical resources at MongoDB. Prior to MongoDB, been in a, a range of industries, uh, started off in the defense industry. Uh, and that's where the cybersecurity background comes from. have run and started and sold SaaS businesses, which is generally in either IT leadership consulting or positions for the past decade or so. Awesome. So I know you obviously have uh, touched a few different type of organizations. And I know one thing that we're going to talk about is compliance and some of the impacts of you know, when you establish some of the principles, especially in a company that's kind of in a growth phase, moving from startup to larger enterprise. I know during the startup phase, no one wants to constrain things. It's run, run, run. But obviously things start to get formalized and kind of some of the wins, the hips and the hows really become important. So I guess from your perspective, you know, when you're looking at compliance within that growth phase, what are some of the markers that you see that you need to start introducing those principles? Well, I think there's two buckets of that. One is what most companies go through naturally, which is the first marker is when customers start demanding it, depending on the space that they're in, especially in business-to-business companies. I think that that's a little too late, actually. I think most people will view compliance in general as a burden. It has a bad reputation. It's kind of considered like the shop of no. It's, it's overhead controls, when in fact, it doesn't have to be. And only ever feels that way if you wait a little too late during your company's evolution to actually pursue it. And specifically, what I think is the first thing to pursue is more around risk management as the early onset, as opposed to trying to establish security controls. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess when it, you know, so I guess that if you're waiting too late, I mean, what are, in your view, some of the ways someone can possibly help shift that mindset, right? So obviously, people are looking at it as a burden. And if you're introducing it a little bit late, what are some things that you've seen work in terms of trying to change the culture around that? Well, I think um, when security is considered towards the later stages of some engineering or product uh, endeavor, wherever that's originating from, the sponsor of the company, it's already too late. I think uh, putting security in the forefront of it in terms of the business justification to begin with goes a long way for that because then it's not such a large leap to be talking about the risks around a project. And it's, it's almost ironic that they don't ignore risk. In fact, they operate in the face of tremendous risk at all times when they're a small company trying to find market fit. But when it comes to compliance and security, they tend to look at it just as a kind of a last mile mitigation factor as opposed to an enabler, right? So if it's a new product and you're thinking about uh, SOC 2 trust principles or HIPAA compliance, or maybe you want to sell to federal customers, which is a big uplift, Doing that early on and thinking strategically what you want your products to do and who you want to sell to um, kind of changes the game of it. You're not playing catch up. It's from the very onset. And when that happens, you can kind of convey and relay to the rest of the company, to whether it's product management or the rest of the, the executive staff or sales. Even though the upfront costs seem higher, they're frankly not. 
It's mostly just the discovery phase that intimidates companies as they don't usually have in-house compliance experience. And, and you can either you know, go external counsel for that or you can, you can bring people on for it. But if you're designing your products with those controls in mind and with those security and compliance frameworks in mind, it's much easier to maintain. It's much easier to pass audits. It's much easier to talk to customers and sell it before you've achieved those compliance requirements as well. Yeah, I guess that's an interesting challenge, especially selling into, I mean, you know, your, your startup phase, you're just trying to sell to anyone. But as you approach uh, a larger enterprise or the federal government, and all of a sudden that requirement's in place, that's when you realize it might be broken and you're going to fix it. And I guess typically, you know, where does, you know, I, I guess, you know, going through the thought process of where does a startup turn to first? Like that'd be interesting because I'd imagine it's going to be very reactive. They're going to try to catch up and just put a checkbox, right? I think at that point, it's just a box checking activity. I mean, geez, that seems like a lot of pressure. Sure. I think it really does depend on the market that you're selling to. But generally, the most common path for companies is they will start to get pushback from customers that have security teams. And they'll talk about their white papers or security architecture, their internal controls. But eventually the company says, that's great. Everyone has an answer for it. Prove that you operate these controls. And so the first thing they turn to is something like a SOC 2, generally around the security principle. And sometimes that's totally sufficient. And sometimes it is okay to be reactive for that. But however, if you are approaching customers earlier on to say you have things like an actual security management system, an ISMS, which is stipulated under ISO 27001, a very big compliance and intimidating compliance framework for small companies to get into, you build a lot of immediate credibility. One way to think about compliance in terms of justifying the cost, whether you're a CTO or a CPO or whatever, maybe just the founding CEO of a company, is that independent uh, attestation from auditors that you work with and pay is just as good, if not better, than certain customer logos that you have already. It establishes an amount of credibility that is, is hard to debate or argue against. I guess that's interesting because sometimes, you know, like you mentioned, you're everyone's trying to get the logos up there to build that social proof. Yeah, maybe actually, you know, the compliance piece, especially if a customer is looking at your website, will feel, all right, well, they've gone through certain steps and certain you know, maturation of their thought process of their product that obviously uh, gives them some good and comfort factors as well. Yeah, definitely. Speaking from my own personal experience, I'm not at all interested in what big companies, uh, small vendors working for. I want to know where they're at in their security journey, so to speak. And if they're just sending us white papers, it's one, it's going to take us a lot of work to validate what they have to do. And two, I just can't trust it without audit rights, which are kind of ridiculous because it's just too costly for me to go do that. And having that independent attestation makes me want to give them our logo to help their business. It means that they are mature in general. That makes sense. I know one topic we're going to you know, touch on as well. And I think it kind of all fits together as you're, as you're going through the changes and challenges of selling to different markets. Obviously, compliance becomes an issue once you're selling to a bigger customer, potentially, or the federal government. And then obviously, the flip side to this is if you're actually going to be, let's say, working within China, deploying in China, before you're even there, there's some constraints. I know you have some experience in this space. And in terms of the commercial viability, how you do that? What are your some thoughts in terms of uh, the challenges there? Uh, it really depends, again, on what you're selling. So if you're a content provider, maybe you're a, a recommendation engine or some enterprise API or service along those lines that is a web server, effectively, you have avenues to pursue that region yourself. 
if you are a platform as a service provider or infrastructure in any sense, like we are at MongoDB, it's a very different licensing regime that has been put in place. Uh, we're like around 2015, I think, is when they changed it, the Ministry of Industry and IT. So depending on that, you have to assess the legality of it. And sometimes you'll work with a partnering company, an SOR in China, where you will use their license that is granted because the PRC does not actually want foreign entities to run those services. It has to be channeled through a, a, um, an actual local entity. But that's one avenue. You just generally have to have force margins when you go that route. If you are a website, maybe it's a press type site or a review site or a just a general API type services, web content, you can do that yourself. You register with a wholly foreign-owned entity and you would apply for an internet content provider license, an ICP ban specifically, which gives you the right to actually publish content of certain types. It's a pretty nuanced thing. There's a lot of variables that go into that. And I couldn't possibly answer that in a generic manner. And invariably, you have to get external counsel in China anyways, depending on which districts you want to operate out of. It sounds like just to hit the ground and and get work done, you're going to have to find a trusted partner dealing with some of the, I I guess, just the changing regulations. I mean, you need someone there to keep you apprised. I'm sure from one day to the next or the next year, if things are changing, I mean, you don't want to get caught flat-footed, something like that, correct? Absolutely. And it's important from a technology perspective to build products that can change faster than regulation, which can change pretty quick. Fortunately, for a lot of providers in this space, uh, in the general technology space, uh, you're going to be working with someone like AWS if you're a a non-Chinese company that wants to operate there. And they have fantastic resources that can pair you with the appropriate um, companies, the the resellers, etc. And understand the general processes as well. What's the, the threat model look like? So obviously, you know, getting deployed you know, dealing with regulations, it sounds like there's a lot of definite process you have to go through. There's some challenges in itself. What, how do you deal with the actual threat side of it? Because obviously a completely different ecosystem compared to maybe what you're running outside of, you know, mainland China. So there's two sides of that, I think. One of them is just commercial risks and threats, which is just the imminent risk of being shut down without any notice uh, or having the change regulation that we covered a little bit. But the other is you have to assume that your environment has other administrators and that you have to determine what data is appropriate to reside within mainland China. And again, I don't like giving non-specific answers, but it really depends on the kind of product. An example would be... Um, any day, maybe you, you do store some type of confidential information, not necessarily PII or, or health information, and you don't want uh, that to be accessed. Some of the strategies that companies use is you might pre-stage your virtual server images outside of mainland China and ship them into China so that when they launch, you're minimizing the exposure you have. The keys to unlock those are still, of course, physically accessible, but that'd be the same as at Amazon or any other provider that you use. I guess the biggest difference is while there are controls that would prove that while Amazon could access the physical memory on the systems when they're hosting your infrastructure, there are controls that you can trust are operating that prevent that from happening. And you just can't necessarily trust that in an environment like China. You should assume that it was compromised. I guess you have to almost approach the problem as though, like you mentioned, you already know you're compromised. So I guess when various uh, components of security is looking at this, what kind of, I guess, pressure is put on the security teams and the compliance teams to kind of start looking at this differently than they do maybe in the rest of their typical day-to-day? So for compliance and security teams, I actually don't think they have to look at it much different. It's just, um, it's often, it's easy to put high valuable targets, so to speak, or, or types of information in an environment that is uncontrolled. And that's the mistake that they might make. I think most of the 
necessary actions or the work occurs to kind of bulkhead and minimize those risks occurs on the product and engineering side of how you're building and deploying your product. And security should be involved in co-designing that. But um, yeah, I think most of it resides there. Absolutely. That seems pretty, uh, a different type of challenge, as it were. I guess, you know, in terms of uh, something we were talking about off air, and, and I think it's a growing trend we're seeing of, you know, different parts of the SCLC shifting to the left. So, you know, security, we're seeing DevOps, compliance, governance, all these areas, they're trying to kind of move more towards, uh, you know, the engineering side where, where things are being developed to help you know, impart their requirements rather than waiting once the product's done. And I guess you're seeing, you know, through your work, a lot of, you know, CICD principles come into play in various different areas, whether it's, you know, the data warehouse, business systems. What are you seeing in that, in that capacity? The most important thing from a business perspective is just the productivity and velocity of those teams. But to the point of security specifically, the big benefit in having this kind of paved way for your developers or your implementation teams to build things is you can automatically include security benefits and controls, things like secrets management as a service, uh, distributing um, API keys to the various applications that run, for example, can be controlled. And when you make it easy for developing teams, as opposed to blocking and forcing securities involvement or an engineer attached to every one of those projects, you can generally trust that they're going to use those because nobody really wants to reinvent these mechanisms, especially when it's an esoteric topic that they're likely to get wrong. And so when you provide these things kind of for free, you create a lot of adoption to those. And that includes monitoring and observability and alerting and include security features and things of that nature. Really, if you think about the, the life cycle of what it takes to design, build, and deploy, and run an application, there's a ton of pain points that exist within that, depending on the competency of the teams. Uh, and what I'm seeing more than anything is a shift for, like you said, the data engineering teams, business system teams, and security teams is to build tools that make that easy for the business unit teams that will have their own technical resources and they will want to do things on their own and not be bottlenecked through central resources. So they're shifting more into platform providers than they are operational labor. What do you see, I guess, from the impact on governance? What is the impact for that side of the house? Yeah, it's this interesting phenomenon. There's like some dichotomy that defies common sense, I think, that occurs when you do this. When you think of creating self-service and the ability for tons of teams to deploy against a common data model, like a Salesforce data model, you would think that it can get difficult or unruly to maintain. And there may be more activity. But if you are building a pipeline that encourages them to develop that way, you can actually establish visibility because instead of it being dozens of teams, in some cases, even hundreds of engineers that are working on these things, uh, they're all at least working on it in the same way, their methodology, the way that they design projects, deploy projects, test projects. And so it's a lot easier for security teams or for business systems teams to have kind of uh, oversight across all of that and spot where there's issues and know where to attach themselves, like insert themselves upstream to those teams to add value and help them with it. And so while you are encouraging more volume, you're reducing the noise that comes with it and you're reducing just the, the blind sides probably more important than anything else. You're not always playing catch up to find out what someone, other team has done that could impact governance rules and policies or have downstream impacts. It's flowing to you automatically as a result of building those platforms. Do you see, as we talk about shifting left of some departments and areas that typically were more towards the end of the process, are you seeing the cultural shift in viewing those departments? So I guess when we talked about compliance, you know, we talked about it as a, uh, burden, right? And security is viewed as a bit of a very black box complex area. 
governance as well for a lot of teams would probably be like, well, they need to come do their thing, right? A lot of these post-development. So as CICD is coming to play, we're shifting things a little bit more left. Do you think the cultural side is going to change where, you know, the engineering teams are going to view these functions differently? Yeah, it definitely is. And it's a long, it's like a long road, but uh, these are kind of ameliorative jobs where usually the best you can do is prevent something from breaking in these central control group type teams. But the, the reputation and the mindset is shifting. And the way that I'm seeing that manifest is there's kind of like a notion of a technology partner, right? That gets assigned to a department where instead of going to business systems at the last minute before you want to deploy something or when you get stuck, it's at the very early stages that they'll involve them or the compliance teams or the security teams. And it's helpful because what people are learning is while they can certainly make those areas, that whether it's compliance, security, whatever, uh, a little easier for them and make their lives a little bit better, they also find that the people that they work with in these functions have a lot of other skill sets from other domains and backgrounds and, and uh, can add value in ways that aren't just specific to their typical tool or, or remit of ownership. And then I guess when it comes to, you know, so obviously we're doing everything during, you know, the development process to deliver a better end result for the customer, whether it's internal or external, what are some of the benefits from the actual customer side to some of these shifts? So for internal customers, for like these central tech type teams, generally it's that they don't have to wait for steering committees and quarterly planning. And they don't have to wait months or weeks or quarters to get what they need done done for their business. They have the ability to do it themselves with support to make the things that were previously blocked or hard to do a lot easier to do. So that's a huge benefit, just general company productivity velocity. And then for external customers, I think that ultimately means that you're shipping better product and faster, depending on what industry you're in. Absolutely. I know you guys uh, you know, are applying some of the CICD principles to you know, business systems as well. How is that shifting maybe resourcing, right? So obviously, if you guys are kind of changing a little bit of the overall process, are you seeing a different resource need versus you know, previous? Yeah, so there's this thing that some folks refer to as the comedy or the, the tragedy of GNA, where centralized teams are often asked to build something and then uh, they can't do it. They have too many other priorities. And so the, the requesting team escalates and gets the resources to do it themselves and creates these marooned resources. I don't want to take away teams' abilities to focus on things themselves or solve their own problems. And this is a kind of like the governance thing we were talking about, where this ironic thing is actually happening where the resources are coming more into the central teams because we're taking those problems away as opposed to saying, go build it yourself. It's a lot easier for them to build it. They're dealing with last mile changes to commercial products or, or some esoteric integration that only they really need to know about uh, these end of bit like specific business unit teams. And so they need a support organization, for example, needs less software engineers to build their support infrastructure. Professional services would be in the same boat and, and product teams don't necessarily want to deal with, um, have their own IT evidence collections and things like that. They, they're centralizing it as a result of that kind of mindset, which is great from a company perspective because we overall are a lot more effective. It's not just about spending less money on overall headcount. It's also to make sure that if you've got 10 departments, they each have their top three priorities. Sometimes as a company, the only ones we care about are the top six priorities for one of those business units. And when you centralize those resources, it's a lot easier to make sure that we're putting our money where it best belongs. I guess just to touch on that, like I know, you know, competing resources is the, uh, I mean, it's everyone's constraint. And when it comes to, you know, initially trying to help, you know, internal teams, you know, solve those problems and avoid them going and building their products. And when it comes to prioritization of those initiatives, 
and again, everyone balances this differently in terms of what is deemed highest priority. But when you're talking to an internal team, obviously they have you know their own pain points. You know, how is that you know taking away that not taking away, but but kind of helping them understand that you're a partner and you're helping them build. They don't need to go hire their own uh, resources. Like, what's that conversation like to help you know alleviate that concern of their priorities going to still be you know dealt with as the level they need? Yeah, I think. Um... We try not to commit to things that are uneventful or not a big deal. Like, like I don't, we don't guarantee that every single team is going to get a slice of the pie, so to speak, of central resources. We're very deliberate about that. And that means that you could go quarters without having direct investment from a central team for whatever pain points you might have. But we invite and, and we want everyone to be an active part of how we prioritize that across the company. I think usually conflicts arise when every team, of course, has their top priority. And they just have no idea what the other team's priorities are. So when we create these, they call them steering committees, and I, I hate the bureaucratic term, but it's just a suited one, people can see. And so when they come in thinking, I'm going to lobby for this project, it's so important for us to spend this you know, $500,000 on some minor, I say minor now, but in their eyes, the biggest change ever for Salesforce or financial force or whatever system they're talking about. But then they suddenly see like, wait a second, there's 30 other projects the company needs to get done that have an impact on our actual customers, on our top line, our margins, whatever may be the case. And then they actually try to contribute to those instead. It's, it just creates a really healthy, unified team as opposed to a hide and hire your own resources, territorial kind of thing that you see at the largest companies. And to some sense, that's unavoidable as you get bigger, but it's working for us so far. Absolutely. I was curious to ask you, because obviously you're responsible for so many different, I guess, components at Mongo. When you look at you know pre-pandemic and I was going to say post-pandemic, there's no post-pandemic yet as of this podcast recording, but during the pandemic, what are some of the issues that you've seen pop up from a security perspective, obviously dealing with Lots of business systems and people now, you know, having different dynamics of using them. Have you seen a change or has everything just stayed status quo? Has it put any new things on the radar for you? I think it's shifted priorities and weights and how people operate, which changes just like the urgency of certain risks and how we want to manage them. An example might be there's a a huge uptick and non-standard for, for companies across the globe using things like WeChat and WhatsApp for communication because they're blending their lives closer together on their personal phone. And that can be detrimental to a company or not, depends on how they operate. So usage patterns have changed. There's obviously far more distributed workforce across the world. And so your traditional VPNing in, that's kind of just doesn't change that much, but it's less needed. It's less dependent on. And so the companies that have adopted Concepts like Zero Trust or Beyond Core from Google and tools like that are really well suited for it. I would say probably the biggest change for us is that these central teams, going back to the reputational point, have just been considered a hero since the beginning because we've been able people to keep doing their job done. So that's probably been the most rewarding professionally six, seven months of uh, most people in IT type teams' careers. Yeah, I guess, you know, when the pandemic hit, there's a lot of talk about you know, companies are being forced to undergo digital transformation. And I kind of viewed that as that, yeah, okay, yeah, when 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 you have a situation that's forcing you to make moves, that's fine. But also, a lot of companies are operating under certain processes that are well-established at bigger companies, and they're not easy to shift. So all of a sudden, to kind of go from, you know, what was normal for, let's say, years or even a decade to all of a sudden now, brand new environment, that responsiveness it makes me wonder 
let's say a year from now, two years, how much of that will we retain, right? Because I mean, as humans, we tend to forget pain <laughs> and think about, oh, that was, you know, it was a successful outcome. But the thought process of how do you respond to that you know, can we always be proactive? I, I think that's very difficult, but maybe the mindset shift of going, hey, we can be a little bit more dynamic. Do you, do you see maybe some of that staying with organizations? I think the, the types of changes that people have familiarized with will stick to some degree, like supporting more remote workforces and, and those kinds of things. Sales forces have seen or sales teams have seen they can be productive or more productive in this environment than they were. What I hope for more than anything else is that we are also open to future extremely controversial ideas. I remember a year ago saying 75% of a company being remote was like a, you'd be laughed at, it would be an impossibility. And suddenly it's possible and embraced. So I hope that we, as a global population, have a more open mind to these ideas because when we have these baked in assumptions, whether it's the place that real estate has in business or it's the productivity of remote workforces, um, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot to not contemplate them and pilot with them. So I hope that functions, whether it's security or IT or related ones, have that freedom to call it R&D if you want to, but explore those avenues with companies without it being considered a crazy thought. I agree with you. I think that's going to be the most maybe impactful takeaways to realize that we do have the capacity to to consider this slightly outlandish or mad scientist thought. I mean, obviously can't consider everything an organization, but maybe sometimes looking at a way of challenging status quo and going, all right, well, is it something that we undertake? It might be painful, but maybe there's a lot of uplift just because we haven't seen it done someplace else. And I think this, this hopefully is going to, I agree with you, hopefully put people in positions to realize that, uh, you know, completely remote workforce, you know, which was probably, uh, I mean, in New Year's Eve, I bet you everyone would have said, how would we ever do that? And now it's like, all right, well, just do it. <laughs> and, and like you said, you know, WhatsApp and iMessage, while not the most secure, people found a way, I think, which is kind of the core of humans. We adapt and just progress no matter what. Yeah, that's really well said. Well, I really appreciate your time on the podcast. I mean, I think uh, from your perspective, you have a very unique view of so many different challenges of you know dealing with compliance, you deal with risk, you deal with applications and people, I think very unique uh, viewpoints. So I, I really appreciate you being on and kind of sharing your thoughts on some of these areas. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. Again, greatly appreciate you doing the podcast, being a guest. And um, we'll be back again next week with uh, another guest, different uh, subject area. As always, I'm you know, looking for the feedback in terms of topics you'd like to see covered, any questions within the space. And as well, if you could uh, you know, provide a rating or a review, it'd be fantastic. It really helps the podcast reach more people. I think we're going to hit a nerve with people with this podcast. We've had great uh, feedback thus far. And I appreciate it. Thanks until next week. <laughs>